WBZ original. Yes. It's it's John Keller with Paula Eben. Hi, Alex. Hey. I I was confused when my phone rang because I'm literally being called in to speak for a podcast in about 30 seconds. Um, so I thought you were the podcast. Can I call you back as soon as I'm off the podcast? We are the podcast. We are the podcast. Oh, even better. Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> so. Hello, everyone, and welcome. Yet another just absolutely fantastic, bulging, it's a Jam-packed. Not just with content, but high-quality content edition. I didn't know where you were going to go with that. Of Studio you BZ. Were talking about the podcast. Well, you know the old saying about 40 pounds of... <laughs> You know what? In a thirty-pound bag, <laughs> you know this that's, isn't that's like that. This is pate. This is Forty pate. pounds of pate. That is true. It is a in packed a, podcast. Yeah, true. Welcome back, by the way. Thank I, you. Back. I want you to know I did say Shonato about you last week. Thank you. Yeah. Awful Tomorrow rest. I'm going to be atoning for my sins. So well, there you go. Me, just a little time left to try. To that's going to be a very busy. Could be a long day. Yeah, that's going to be a long day. Lots of fun. We'll see you when you get back. We'll give you a big hug. Sounds good. So joining us here for Studio BZ, John Keller. And Liam Martin. Yeah, and Paula Eben. And I'm Paula Eben. And I uh, want to start off this week we letting you know what we're talking about. We spoke with our WBZ reporter, Christina Rex, about her coverage of the gas pipeline explosions in Lawrence, North Andover, and Andover, because last week she found herself reporting from her very own neighborhood. Yes, reporting on the story that was affecting her. So we talked with Christina about that. Steve Burton had a sit down with Matt Brown. This is the young man who was paralyzed 10 years ago playing hockey. His uh, new book is coming out. So Steve talked with him and he's a very inspirational young man. Speaking of books, I interviewed CBS White House correspondent Major Garrett, uh, Garrett about his new book, Mr. Trump's Wild Ride, where he says that covering the White House feels like what I imagine it would be to witness Cirque du Soleil on acid. <laughs> so you'll hear what Major has to say about Sounds covering awesome. the White House. And then in political circles here and nationally, people are still buzzing about Ayanna Presley's mm-hmm. upset win in the Democratic primary against 20-year incumbent Mike Capuano. We're taking a deep dive into some of the, the uh, political marketing philosophies, if you will, behind that victory with Alex Goldstein, a key communications consultant to the Presley campaign. That's all coming up here on Studio BZ. Why don't we start by talking about what happened in the newsroom? Because when the gas pipeline explosions started going off in the Lawrence, greater Lawrence area last Wednesday, it was about 4.45, David and Lisa were sent to the anchor desk because we were seeing these really scary plumes of smoke. And then you really didn't have a sense. It seemed like a house was on fire, but that there were several popping up in the area and it kind of escalated from there, Liam, and you immediately were sent out there. A helicopter was flying overhead and they went to one address, smoke pouring out of the building. Sky Eye pans out and all of a sudden you see much of Lawrence Andover, North Andover is consumed in smoke as these explosions had gone off one after another. And right, I was sent out immediately, I'd say at about 5.15 to head up there. It took forever to get there. Yeah. And this is one of the interesting things with covering a news story that is so um, major is that they had shut down all of the exits Hard to get off there. of Lawrence, off of 495. So you have to figure out, can state police let me through here? Will they let the mm-hmm. press through? Where's the press going to gather? And then when we got to the command center, I've never seen so many police and fire vehicles in my life, hundreds and hundreds of hundreds at the Showcase Cinemas in Lawrence. That became the command center. There are still 
people there. And it is going to be a long haul yeah. because even though they got electricity back on mm-hmm. in Lawrence Andover and North Andover, and it is now safe to go back into the homes, they're not worried about gas leaking anymore. They're not going to have gas back no. for a considerable period of time. And John, it was remarkable by Friday afternoon when the governor and Lawrence Mayor Dan Rivera had that press conference where they said they really had a vote of no confidence in Columbia Gas and the governor declared a state of emergency and appointed Eversource to take control of the situation. I mean, politically, I've, I've never seen such a thing. Well, uh, you know, clearly they were furious. The residents were angry and are still angry about the way the utility handled that. And I'll tell you something else. I'm doing a story today for our early news about um, uh, the San Bruno, California gas pipeline explosions of 2010, which a major bond rating agency today compared with what happened in the Merrimack Valley in terms of the potential damage to the credit rating of Columbia Gas and its parent company, Nysource. But also there's a lot of other interesting comparisons in that story about what people can expect to happen next. Here come the lawsuits. Mm. Here come the ramifications, financial and otherwise. This story's far from over. Paul and I talked with a gas industry expert uh, last week who right away said this happened in a, on a much smaller scale in Lexington in 2005, Five. I believe he said, and it was six months before everyone was able to get their gas back. If we have the same scenario here, it will be all of winter, mm. all of winter with people with no heat. So with that thought in mind, I interviewed our WBZ reporter, Christina Rex, about what that was like and what her family is living with now and how they're ready to really face what will be a months-long ordeal. This is Greater Boston. Cradle of American Democracy. Christina Rex, welcome to your podcast debut. Thank you. We have a lot in common. We do. We are both BC Eagles, right? We are. We are. Former BC singers. That's right, and singers. (laughs) It's actually a fascinating phenomenon. If you talk to 100 anchors, I bet you 80 of them will tell you they're singers. Mm-hmm. It's a very common mm-hmm. career choice. Mm-hmm. So you went up to Maine. You you worked in Portland and Bangor. Mm-hmm. And then now you're in Boston. Uh-huh. And you moved back in with mom and dad. Correct. I'm with mom and dad right now. And, you know, everybody has mixed reactions to that. But my mom and dad are really cool, so that's good. And they both work all the time anyway, so right. the three of us rarely so run working, into one another. you're saving money on rent. Mm-hmm. You're, yep. You have an advice. The college siblings are gone. They're both gone, right. So, so it's, it's just, just me, mom, and dad. Which you never had. Nope. Well, not since I was three. <laughs> and then bring us back to the end of last week. Okay. So, um, and one of our photographers, Mike Townsend, can vouch for me on this one. On Wednesday of last week, I was working and it was only my fourth day in a row, but it had just been kind of a long week. And I literally said to him, oh my God, I have tomorrow off and I cannot wait. I was like, I just need a day off. I have so many errands to catch up on. So I catch up on some of my errands on Thursday and um, then about four o'clock rolls around and my little sister is actually coming home. The two of us are going to go visit my dad who works one night a week at a local bar. He bartends one night a week. So we were going to go sit there and hang out, catch up with my sister. Um, She's coming home and I'm in my house by myself and I turn on the TV and I just see a video of um, what looks like an apartment building just 
you know, smoke coming out of every single window. About 445, we got right. word in the newsroom that there were these strange fires popping up in Andover, Lawrence, right. and we got on the air. So I saw it on TV first, and I was like, huh. I see the image. It's obviously really powerful. I look down at the words on the bottom of the screen, and they say, um, suspected 20 fires in Lawrence, Andover, North Andover. Mm. And I'm like, oh, no. Mm. Okay, that is where I am right now. You know, my street, I couldn't see anything around me. Mm. I could only see what was on the TV. Within minutes, um, my mom comes home. I show her what's on TV, and we get a phone call that says, evacuate your homes and turn off your gas. Mm. We run outside. My neighbor's running out of her house. Did you guys just get that phone call? Did you just yeah, get that? When you what run outside, now the neighbors are running outside, and you get a message that says evacuate. I mean, that's got to be scary. Oh, yeah, and it's unlike anything we've ever dealt with. My friends uh, joked with me that this was payback for all the times I called Andover a boring town right. in my life because I joked when I moved here, you know, I'll be doing the news, but not much news happens in Andover, Nothing so I probably won't have to go here. home. Right. right. And so uh, all my neighbors are running out of their houses, and we're all like, what is going on? You know, when you're in a situation like that, I kind of just assumed that the authorities were being extra precautious, but probably didn't really realize what was going on. And it was kind of like as we're all literally standing in the street, right. like nobody is. When did it really set in how big of an event this was? I think once I kept following all the news coverage and realized that it was continuing, you know, it wasn't yeah. just these 20 homes blew up. It was these 20 homes and mm-hmm. we are going down a pipeline and you don't know what house is going to explode right. next. Because I got to say, it was kind of like that on the air, too. Um, I can imagine. We saw a couple of fires. The smoke was billowing, and then it went to thirty-nine, and then you know, and the number kept right. growing. So all of a sudden, you find yourself. So you you called in. You did a phoner for us. I did. So that was kind of a weird situation where my friend, you know, my neighbors were joking. Oh, Christina, you're gonna have to get on the news because they didn't realize how big of a situation this was, and I didn't really either. And I was like, oh no, I really might have to. So once I got that reverse nine one one call, I sent an email to the newsroom and said, we just got a call to evacuate because I knew that uh, we hadn't reported that yet. I don't think that had been put out to the press yet. And our assistant news director called me and said, can we get you on the phone? So they did. And I did one phoner and just kind of explain what I was seeing, which was no smoke near my house, but was just fire trucks zooming by nonstop. Um, And then after that, it got, you know, we tried to do multiple more phoners and we ended up doing them on my landline. I stayed on the street near my house on the landline because there were so many people outside freaking out using their phones that we all lost service. You couldn't use your cell phone. I couldn't get in touch with anybody yeah. anymore. And um, was there ever any fear? Did you ever have any impact in your immediate neighborhood? Uh, my street, no, but the closest fire was within half a mile. So we, We're in that um, impacted area. You know, I live right near downtown Andover, which is still on the list of bad areas. And I think the one point where I was really nervous was when I was realizing that, you know, these fires and these explosions were just popping up and you didn't know where the next one would be. And my father had rushed home from work to come turn off our gas. He had never had to turn off the gas before, so it took him Did like 10 to minutes. It? So he asked people at work before he came home and he got lessons on how to turn off the gas. But he was in my Not house. Not something you want to fool around no. And he's in my house for like 10 minutes and I'm getting anxious. I'm thinking, you know, this is moving so fast. I really don't want my dad to be in my basement when our gas tank blows up, you know. So I ended up, he finished it and got out luckily. And then he ended up going to all of our neighbors and shutting off their gas. But it was just, I think that was a moment where I was like, you know, we really don't know if our house is going to be hit or not because it's clearly um, 
random. Right. And then you did live shots later, right? I did. So I ended up going in, you know, um, I did a couple phoners and then our assistant news director said, uh, do you want to work? Because it's so crowded. It's rush hour. We can't even get any reporters there. So I was like, yeah, I'm already here. So I ended up just staying through the night and working, which... What else was I going to do? Stand in the street with my neighbors, <laughs> you know? When the news comes to right. your street. Right. So we all realize now it appears there was an overpressurized gas line incident. Friday night, Liam and I on the 8 o'clock news interviewed this gas industry expert who kind of said to us, this people are in for the long haul. I mean, mm-hmm. I think initially the governor, uh, the mayor of Lawrence, you know, police chiefs in the different towns were kind of indicating, well, you know, we're going to have to have the gas off for the weekend till we get everything back to normal. It's become pretty clear that the gas isn't going to be back on for a very long time. Right. And you are right that it took them some time to figure that out. And I mm. think, I think, frankly, even in you know, my area, I don't think it's necessarily settled in. Yeah. Because so, so, so obviously your dad shut off the gas. Right. You were cleared to go back in the house when? Sunday. So by Sunday morning, I think yeah. it was. Yeah. All three communities, they said, okay, be vigilant, be careful. You can go back in your house, but there's no heat. There's, there's no, no hot heat. Water. There's no hot water. Right. You have electricity. We do have electricity. And I think most of the towns have electric back, Mm -hmm. which is nice. But the one good thing is for a lot of residents, they've now split up the area. So there are areas that are totally cleared and will have their gas back on soon. Unfortunately, my family is not in that zone. Mm -hmm. But that is good that they've at least separated it to that degree. But I don't think, frankly, I don't even think until today people realized how long this was going to be. You know, I called my mom and said, hey, we just got a press release that said we're not talking days, we're talking yeah. weeks or months. It's it's a disaster. Yeah. Uh, this uh, Bob Ackley, who we had on the show, said not only do they need to turn the gas back on individually to each, but they've got to go recertify, obviously, for good reason, mm-hmm. as we've just seen, the connections, each area of pipe. And the pipeline is 48 miles, the they said today. so immense. And so so over the weekend, what did you do? You said you took a very cold shower <laughs> this morning. This morning, I took my first very cold shower. Over the weekend, um, my family, you know, I have have to say my family is incredibly lucky and I think situations like this uh, kind of make you realize your privilege and where you stand because you know some of our neighbors in Lawrence don't really have anywhere to go and are stuck at these shelters and stuff we're lucky that we have family all over Massachusetts we have family everywhere I went to Connecticut um, with my boyfriend's family because originally I was like oh this weekend I'm gonna really need it to plan and get my life together and whatever you know I only moved here a month or so ago right. and then it was like I can't do anything productive in the town of Andover so right now. I need to get out. Right. And you're right. You know, we should never go long in this conversation about what happened last week without mentioning Leo Rondon, mm-hmm. who died sitting in his car just in a friend's driveway and the chimney of the house collapsed on the car. And right. A poor 18-year-old boy was killed. And No, and it happened in a matter of seconds. Like, you never saw it coming. Yeah, but for thousands of people, you know, this is a race against the cold it's a race against right. November 1st. And really the kind of cold that sets in by mid-October around here. Right. And I think a lot of people have been saying we're lucky that this happened in September because imagine if you didn't have heat in your house right now. And I just think that being at home, you know, I've only experienced it last night and today now, but you don't realize how much you use heat and hot water Isn't until you true? don't have it. Yeah. When you can't just turn the hot water, right. stick it on and have it come out. So right now you guys are grilling. 
we're grilling. We are hopefully going to use the crock pot for some meals. You can use that. You're going to take some cold showers. Very cold showers. It's really nice, though. A lot of area gyms have opened up showers, That's even if you're smart. not a member. That is smart. Yeah. Although so, cold showers are supposed to be good for your scalp. They are supposed to be good for you, but I will say it was pretty miserable. <laughs> you know when it's so cold that you, like, can't breathe? I was yeah. like, <gasps> yeah, trying to shower. So what do your parents say? What's their outlook? Uh, my parents are fairly positive people, so that's good. Yeah, that is good. You need positivity. Um, yeah, I think that uh, I think we'll be fine in terms of you know f- cooking and food and whatnot. Luckily, mm-hmm. the refrigerator works, right. so that's great. Um, so my parents. Um, they work a lot. Like, they're both teachers, but my dad works, he coaches, Andy bartends. My mom does all kinds of extra things at her school. So they very rarely, like, they're spend not time not doing anything. Right. right. But they're always on the go. So, like, they get up in the morning. My mom does some of her schoolwork. She hops in the shower. She runs to work. I think that trying to figure out how a normal routine, because my mother... She might kill me when she hears this, but she is not the kind of woman to take a cold shower every morning. (laughs) She's going to need to find somewhere to bathe. The convenience, right? Um, What do your parents teach, by the way? Uh, My mom is an eighth grade American history teacher at a Catholic school. Mm -hmm. My dad teaches elementary school gym. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's great. I I joke that they love the kids. I joke that they have the whole town covered because my mom teaches middle school, my dad teaches elementary, and then my dad coaches high school. (laughs) So we walk around; they know every single kid. Well, Christina actually did a great job for us and uh, it's great to have you on the WBZ team thank you appreciate it and we wish your family nothing but the best and that you quickly get the gas turned back on I hope so too (laughs) thank you each day hundreds of thousands of people pour into the one square mile of downtown mile of downtown Steve Burton came into the studio a couple of weeks ago and he said the story that I have for tonight you have to see it you have to hear from this kid, Matt Brown. In Norwood, 10 years ago, he is playing in a hockey game. He gets hit from behind. His head goes into the boards, and he is paralyzed. Uh, and he has now written a book about how, what it took to get over the initial shock of that and where he's going now. People sometimes will ask me if somebody, a, a high school student is interviewing me for a paper or something, who's your hero? And after family members, the only name I've ever been able to sort of immediately come up with is um, Travis Roy, the BU player who went through a similar ordeal. And again, the same kind of thing, The, the way that people can rise to the occasion and the people around them can rise to the occasion. It's humbling. And as you say, it's inspirational. First of all. How you doing? Good. Um, everything's been really good. Take me back. At uh, January twenty-third. You know, I had gotten called up to the varsity um, just a week week before. We beat Natick uh, that Wednesday. Uh, and it was time to go into uh, Weymouth, and it was a late afternoon game. Everyone was excited to go in, you know, win and. Um, have time to hang out after. Um, during the fir- uh, first period, we, I wasn't playing well, our line wasn't mixing and matching, so we actually got benched by the end of the first uh, period. And um, going into the locker room, I don't remember much of what was said, um, but I know Coach was not happy at all. And um, you know, as we came out to the second period, I would skate a shift, then I would sit, mm-hmm. someone else would skate a line and shift. 
And he looked at us um, halfway through and said, go do something. So that was our that was sign to, let's do something. Um, I hopped the boards and I raced down. Uh, the puck was in the far end. As I got to it, um, I got on my stick and it bounced off my stick and hit the boards. Um, at the same time, I felt a player uh, converge on me racing for the puck. And I looked down and um, at the same time, just that weight of the body on me, I lost my footing, went head first into the boards and um, everything went crazy from there. Don't remember anything else until um, a friend's mother was on the ice with me, looking at me, um, you know, cutting off my chin guard. And um, at that time, I looked over and saw that my mom's jeans were wet up to a, up above her ankle, which let me know that she'd been on the ice for, you know, quite some time. And this was more serious than, than just getting hit in a, you know, it was it was more serious. Could you hear the arena go silent? Yeah, and that was um, that was one of the uh, craziest parts because you know you could hear a pin drop moments before you know f fans of both teams were going crazy, you know, cheering for each each right. each team, um, and then you know not being able to relay the message uh, you know that I was okay it, you want to give a thumbs up I, you, you see it you see it everywhere you see the uh, a fist a finger a thumbs up as a player leaves the game and I couldn't and that that was that was tough when you were laying there on the ice you blacked out uh, yeah I, I, I definitely don't remember. I, I definitely don't remember much um, it, it, it's spotty I remember um, you know, just being, felt like I was just being, you know, suffocated with layers and layers of wet concrete. My body just numb. Um, you know, one of the things you're taught in hockey is growing up is that, you know, you hit, you get hit, you hit the boards, you get back up and get back in the play. And that message was going for my brain. It just wasn't reaching the rest of my body. Well, my friend, you've done a lot since then. You've done a lot to see you now. And, and what you've overcome. I read in your book, there was a point where you were questioning, why me? Why me? But then you flipped it. Yeah, you know, I, I, I was angry. I, I was sad, I was angry. You know, what did I do to deserve this? Um, but then seeing, you know, my family, the revolving door of my friends coming in, uh, the town of Norwood, the hockey community, um, the messages I was receiving. Uh, you know, how I made a decision then that I'm going to work as hard as I can for as long as it takes, you know, to reach that goal. And that goal is to walk again. Um, it's taken longer than I've wanted, mm -hmm. longer than I've expected, but that goal has never wavered. You asked the question, why me? But then you said, what? Why not me? Uh, you know, I, I was 15. I'm, I'm 24 now. I have a long life to live. And yeah, I'm going to live every day to the fullest. There's a lot of people out there that have it worse than me. Um, and I've learned that early. And that, um, and that really gave me a sense that it's, life goes on. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, life goes on, and it can be hard at times. Um, 
but you know you lean on those that are there for you um, you, you know you don't got to go through it alone they get angry they you know and I'm not saying you didn't go through the, the anger part of it but you just you light up a room when you come into a room you, it's it's infectious I mean you just bring people to a higher level you know I I, I think that goes back to the uh, the family I grew up with. We like to have fun, uh, and I think it's just it goes back to you know you have one life, and you know you don't want to waste any of it. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, I think I'm just trying to you know live the life as best and as full as I can. Tell me if you would um, about the kid who hit you. Yeah, it was not a vicious hit. Two kids playing hockey, hard, fast, the way it should be. Um, a split second the other way, it could have been different. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so you have total forgiveness for this kid. Absolutely, and I've got to know him uh, and meet his family, and it, it, they're just a great great family and he's an unbelievable hockey player you know he went up to Norwich and won a a division three national championship he's playing hockey in the um, SPHL the Southern Professional Hockey League Uh, hockey is 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 very uh, big in his life and he's a great hockey player let's go to the marathon because one of my favorite times and you know me I got to interview every you know a lot of people that come across that finish line but seeing you yeah. Crumb across that finish line and getting a chance to talk to you means so much. You know, one of the funniest things about running these marathons and races is that I was one of the slowest kids <laughs> is that right? growing up. I, I hated running. Um, and when Luke asked, you know, would you ever want to be pushed? I said yes before even thinking of what it was going to take. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know I'm not. I'm not running these races, but it's it's the closest you know I've thought I'd get. It's it's one of the best days in Boston. It's it's an amazing feeling. Your book, get ready to come out. The title, line change. Line change. <laughs> line, change. line change. You know, uh, something in hockey uh, had to, had to do with hockey. It was a lot of changes going on. You know, after I got hurt. Um, you know, life changed uh, a lot. Um, and that's kind of how we go day by day, hour by hour. So we have 30, 30 days left on our Kickstarter campaign. Okay. We're not releasing the book until, officially Wait. releasing it until March of 2019. Okay, but you can buy it ahead of time. You can buy it ahead of time and get it in your hand before the holidays. And how do you go about buying it? So it's, yep. it's on kickstarter.com. Okay. Um, and if you search, bring Matt Brown's book to a bookshelf near you. It's an amazing feeling. You know, not only knowing that people want to read your book, but now that they're going to, it's exciting. Yeah. It's terrifying. Um, I'm nervous, You're but, a great writer, but believe me, but I, I, I am so, I'm, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. You should be. Thank you. you did a great job with it. Hey, that really you um, should be. I mean, it means a lot. Awesome. Our newscasters, our editors, all work as an efficient, well-coordinated, fact-finding team. So the night of the New Hampshire primary, I was in the CBS News workspace and Major Garrett was there. You and I were there together. We were there together. Yeah. And then uh, I remember talking to Major about how this was the night that made Donald Trump for real. 
mm. that this was the first time people Because he had lost Iowa. Wow, yes. This this is now really for real. So today I talked to Major Garrett because he's on the press tour for his new book, Mr. Trump's Wild Ride, mm. which is out in bookstores now. Always great to hear from a card-carrying enemy of the people. <laughs> <laughs> As we love to t- call ourselves. Here's Major Garrett. It's possible now so, Major Garrett, Chief White House Correspondent for CBS News, with out today his book, Mr. Trump's Wild Ride, The Thrills, Chills, Screams, and Occasional Blackouts of an Extraordinary Presidency. Major Garrett, thanks so much for taking time to speak with us. Thank you for having me. The last time we saw each other was in the CBS News workspace at the New Hampshire primary when Donald Trump uh, was victorious. Can you put yourself back there and compare what you were thinking that night to today? Well, what I was thinking that night is this is an enormously important moment. Donald Trump, a novice in politics, won the New Hampshire primary, and he won it handily. And he was heading to South Carolina, which I thought he was going to arrive with a substantial amount of momentum. And I remember thinking to myself that night, if he puts those two in a row, He's going to be very, very hard to stop. The polling data had been very strong beneath Donald Trump. Again, this novice, never before seen kind of figure in Republican or Democratic politics. Mm -hmm. And New Hampshire was the place where after absorbing a near victory, meaning a near loss in the Iowa caucuses, he established himself as a formidable figure in Republican Party politics. And then I thought, well, that means he's got a good chance of securing the nomination. Did I think, well, then he's going to be the next president of the United States? No, I can't think that far in advance. But that night, it was obvious to me he was a force to be reckoned with. And part of the book is not only about the campaign, but about the first year and a half of the Trump presidency in which the world and our country is reckoning with that in positive and negative ways. But the reactions to Donald Trump then and now are intense, emotional, and pervasive. That's one of the other things I tried to capture in the book. You know, and it's interesting, Major, because people always talk about wanting to go in journalism because it's a front row seat to history, you certainly probably envisioned being in that front row seat, but this probably is not the history you could have imagined. In the day in and day out coverage of this White House, where it has been pretty chaotic, uh, a new uh, set of facts for the news cycle within hours sometimes, do you think it's worn the press corps and Americans down, or do you think it's been an energizing force that's really re-engaged people in the political process? It has been both. And those two things can be true at exactly the same time. And that's one of the things that's fascinating about the Trump phenomenon, the Trump effect on American life. There is this constant sense of the unpredictability and the volatility and the news and the breaking news of Donald Trump. That also doesn't mean that there isn't sort of a means by which he's trying to achieve things or has already achieved things. One of the things I talk about in the book is already things have happened that whether you love the Trump presidency or despise the Trump presidency, are going to be with us 5, 10, 20 years from now. There are already legacy items attributable what, to the Trump presidency and the Trump effect. What's the most effect. vital one, do you think? I know you write about his accomplishments. What's the most important? It, does, it, it, it depends on your point of view. For a yeah. lot of Republicans, it's the Supreme Court and the federal bench. For other Republicans, it's the economy as dealt with by the tax reform. For other Republicans, small businesses in particular, it's deregulation. He's the most aggressive deregulatory president in American mm-hmm. history, certainly modern American history. Is that going to work out in every respect, or are there going to be holes in health, safety, and pollution that we're going to be dealing with 20 years from now? I don't know. What I do know is 
He has been more aggressive there than any of his more recent predecessors. Those three things alone are legacy items. The way he enforces immigration law and the way he talks about immigration have fundamentally changed not only the way this country discusses the issue, but the way the world looks mm -hmm. at America in relationship to immigration. Those are huge changes. Do you think Americans can ever go back to looking at the presidency the same way again? That is up to the 2018 and the 2020 elections. I write in the epilogue of the book that for many voters, Donald Trump was metaphorically a lottery ticket. Didn't know what you were going to get, but you're willing to take the chance. Now, what was unknowable in 2016, how is this going to play out and what's he going to be like within the Oval Office? We have a pretty good sense now. I don't know if the country's going to say, you know what, this is the new normal and we love it. Or it's going to say, no, 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 no. Yeah. That was an experiment and the experiment's reaching its termination date. I do have to ask before I let you go about the Brett Kavanaugh nomination. At this point, where we have a woman who has come forward to make this accusation, how do you see this White House handling this by next Monday when they both testify? Giving Brett Kavanaugh space to prepare and urging Senate Republicans to keep this as narrow an inquiry as possible and put Brett Kavanaugh's words against the accuser's words and not have the president involve himself very much. Why? His political capital is limited. His moral authority is even more limited. This is going to be up to Brett Kavanaugh, but the White House will stick with him. Well, once again, another fascinating story for us to watch over the next week or so. Major Garrett, the book is Mr. Trump's Wild Ride, wherever you buy books available as of today. Congratulations on the book and thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me and thank you very much. We'd like to give you an idea of what evening's all about. You can look forward to relaxing every evening from now on. So turning to local politics now, but really national politics as well, people are still buzzing about what happened in the 7th Congressional District race where Boston City Councilor Ayanna Presley uh, dramatically outspent running against a popular, progressive, 20-year Democratic incumbent who no one really had any significant complaints with, uh, didn't just beat him on primary night, September 4th, was it, I believe? Yeah. But uh, she blew his doors off. And we took a deep dive into how that happened and maybe what some of the lessons are for our politics going forward with a young guy who I've known for some time. He was an aide to former Governor Deval Patrick, wound up serving as his press secretary. Alex Goldstein now has his own consulting company here in Boston, and he helped guide the Presley campaign to victory. And uh, uh, when you get into the weeds about things like slogans mm -hmm. and what the visual images are that the campaign puts forward, it, you know, it's really fascinating stuff and it's not an exact science by any means. Can I ask you a question, John, and maybe you asked Alex this, but the polls had all shown Capuano winning and winning easily. The, the last poll before the election, which I think was a Mass Inc. poll, had him up by 12 points. And he lost by almost 18 points. Are we in a – I often hear people say, you just don't listen to the polls anymore. And I, I think that's a mistake. I think potentially we shouldn't listen to the polls in a primary on the day after Labor Day. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, where do, what do you, where do you stand on that? I love polls. Yeah. Uh, albeit 
you know, with a grain of salt. It's, it's a snapshot in time. Trust but verify, right? you know, mm-hmm. the, the old uh, saying. As you said, Liam, you can't poll. It's, it's hard, really hard to poll a primary uh, that promises to be kind of a low turnout. Can I say one other thing, too, I thought was so interesting about what he said when we were talking to him. You brought up that her slogan, change can't wait. And we were talking about an old slogan, which is interesting. It's almost as if as new of a candidate as she is uh, and progressives like her around the country, she tapped into a very Boston thing in her ad that showed her on the train with that. The bus, yeah. We were talking about when Joe Timulty ran against Kevin White for mayor of Boston, and people mm-hmm. thought Kevin White was getting a little too big for his britches with his limousine and his driver. And Timulty's slogan was, he lives where you live. Mm. That's kind of their message now. Ocasio-Cortez oh, in New York, Ayanna Presley. So it's almost a very interesting uh, full circle moment that she tapped into a very Boston visceral emotion with the way she ran this campaign. Listen, uh, campaigning is not an exact science. Uh, there's a lot that goes into it. And as you'll hear in our conversation with Alex Goldstein, uh there's a lot that goes on that's almost subliminal in the way it taps into what voters are thinking, different themes that might not be explicit in the campaign dialogue. But uh, boy, do they sometimes really pay off on election day. Listen in. The unexpected is not knowing what's going to happen. Uh, that's the problem. Uh, last year, we lost our video. So it, it's several weeks in the rearview mirror now. And that race has been thoroughly dissected at this point. But there were a couple of things that you folks did in that race that I want you to expand on a little bit and maybe set in the context of whether uh, the these are uh, harbingers of the kind of political campaigning we're going to be seeing more of. And I want to start with the memorable slogan if we can call it that, of the campaign. We heard uh, Ayanna Presley, Councillor Presley, repeating this often during the campaign, and we heard her supporters chanting it at the victory party on election night, change can't wait. Where did that phrase come from, Alex? Uh, you know, so the, the, I will say that phrase definitely predates me. Um, I started on the campaign in April, and that was already being used as a hashtag. So I don't know the actual hmm. genesis of it. But what I, what I will say is that I do think that, you know, most of us read that as sort of a double meaning. There's the, I think, the conventional notion that we need change and we need to fix the issues facing the 7th Congressional District, particularly around income inequality and disparities and health outcomes and all the different things that uh, Councillor Presley talked about. But then there's also this other meaning, uh, which is that change can't wait and that change isn't willing to wait in line. And I think that in Massachusetts politics and frankly, in you know, the sort of politics across the country, we do sort of have this history within the party of telling people they have to wait their turn uh, to run for office. And, you know, being bold enough, um, despite what the sort of conventional wisdom tells you, as Councillor Presley did, to actually take on uh, an incumbent and have primaries, I think is the other part of that message of change can't wait. And the other thing I'll say is I think that the, what we were trying to celebrate with that is this idea that primaries and challenges are actually really good both for the party and also for our democracy. Because she took a lot of heat from within the party for even uh, daring to challenge Mike Capuano, right? 
Right. I mean, you know, I think there are not a lot of precedents in Massachusetts politics of people challenging uh, incumbents who have been around a while. Um, you know, even, uh, you know, I, but I do think we have a pretty long tradition of telling people when it's their turn and when it's not their turn. And, um, you know, I think that that comes from a lot of places. I think that that sort of comes from, you know, both the establishment, but also just sort of the commentary that people put out there around why do you, why would you waste time with what was sort of called by some folks in this campaign a family fight? Uh, we never saw it as a family fight. We saw it as a family dialogue that makes the whole family stronger for having communicated with each other. Well, you know what's interesting about that, Alex, because we were talking, John and I, with our producer, Jonathan Case, about how similar Ayanna's campaign was in retrospect over the summer to Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez in New York. Uh, their ads that were used on, on the web that were so successful. Your notion here that anyone can run, can disrupt the traditional structure and promise change sounds like Donald Trump. Do you think <laughs> well, he changed I mean, everything? Think that, Do you think he made people feel like, well, I can run? Well, sure. I mean, look, if, if that is the, uh, the only good thing that any of us, or at least I personally would be willing to point to, is that it certainly has shown that the democracy is wide open for anybody who wants to jump in. Now, I, I would put aside various things that happened in that election that I think were sort of countered from democracy in terms of foreign actors, but that's not what this podcast is about. Um, in terms of, you know, I think what happens in Massachusetts, I, I think that it also has the capacity to encourage incumbents to stay really, really, really strongly connected to their districts. Right. And the um, if you know, one of the lessons here is that everyone should be ready to have a challenger. Right. And what that means is, you know, staying as close to the ground as you can and continuing to. Um, you know, tell your story and, and do the work. And you know, look, I have a lot of respect for Congressman Capuano. I, I always did. And I continue to um, to this day. I thought that they ran a positive campaign and I thought that, the you know, their campaign focused on if I was their advisor, it focused on what I would have told them to focus on, which was, you know, issues around, um, you know, seniority and uh, the accomplishments he, he felt that he had to the district. What happened to Mike Capuano here? Clearly, as you say, people have enormous respect for him. He showed enormous respect for Ayanna Presley during the campaign, but he was caught up in forces beyond himself, right, that involved this year. Isn't that the way this is supposed to work? You shouldn't be in a congressional seat for life just because. Sure, absolutely. And I think that there were two, in, there, there was two interesting dynamics at play during this campaign. One of them is this idea of sort of the Trump effect on our elections. And I think that there is a voter fatigue right now with this notion that all we need to do is resist Trump. And then if we just resist Trump, everything's going to be all better. And for our campaign, what we said was we have to resist, but we also have to offer an alternative vision. And I think that was a difference um, in the campaigns because the, the implication of if we just defeat Trump, everything goes back to normal. I think the question is for who? And the reality is that the, this district has been one of the most unequal districts in America for a very long time. It predates Donald Trump. It does have to do with decisions made by both Democratic and Republican presidents in the past. And so being able to offer something that was more than just resist, but also progress, I think is actually a takeaway for Democrats across the country. Alex, I don't want to overdo it with the Trump analogies, because frankly, I can't imagine two more polar opposites <laughs> uh, within the realm of humanity than Donald Trump and Ayanna Presley. But before we leave that topic, I'm kind of fascinated by the science 
of campaign slogans. Mm. Now, you worked on Deval Patrick's campaign back in 2006, where this sl- the slogan was, yes, we can, if I recall correctly. I don't know. Uh, it, was, it was, yes, we can was Barack Obama. Together we can. Was I beg your pardon. So Thank we, you. <laughs> Together we can. Just being exact. <laughs> Together. So uh, I can't recall what Mike Capuano's slogan was, or if he even had one, but change can't wait. Mm. It seemed to me followed some of the same uh, patterns that the Trump campaign successfully exploited. Build that wall, lock her up, make America great again. They're short, they're punchy, they denote action. Uh, Are you buying into this that change can't wait uh, is certainly well within that construct? Uh, I don't totally buy it. I mean, I will put, I, I will say this much. There's no question that in successful communication and persuasion, and certainly in the political realm, this is a common thing. I think you have to go a layer deeper to understand the nuance of what was so important about this message. Because what we, what, what, what Councillor Presley was doing every single day, which beyond change can't wait, what she was really repeating was that the inequalities and disparities of the 7th Congressional District have gone sort of unrecognized. People haven't been willing to call them out. And there hasn't been a challenge in this seat for 20 years. And so what she said was, look, win or lose, what I'm going to do is I'm going to call attention to those issues. And she, you know, look, I know that there's uh, like in the campaign setting, it's hard to get tons and tons and tons of substance in there. But she did roll out a like 10 part equity plan that had ways to address the systemic disparities of the district across any number of issues, public health, education, trauma and violence, all of these different things that she's been working on during her career. And that I do think that voters, at the end of the day, do want more than that slogan. I think that that might be an entry point, but that might be the start of the conversation. It's not the end of the conversation. And you have to deliver them a lot more, at least, you know, in an area like Boston, where people expect more. Alex, Deval Patrick is not running for president, correct? Correct. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, (laughs) He's focused right now on the midterms, and he's not running for president. Right. I mean, you know, he's, he's allowed speculation. Uh, uh, to surface, but that's an excellent and perfectly valid way of maintaining your place at the conversation and and heightening your own profile and making sure uh, uh, you get heard, correct? Sure. I mean, look, the, John, you remember we were in the governor's office when I was press secretary in the governor's office. I feel like we were getting these questions, you know, in 2008 and 2010. And, you know, I think the governor feels like, from what I can tell, that he has... Um, you know, wants to, uh, has a message he wants to get out there, has a voice he wants to lend to 2018 candidates across the country who are um, engaged in these midterm battles and that he's going to spend the next couple weekends getting out there and, um, you know, trying to support where he can. Well, Alex Goldstein of 90 West, congratulations on an, a job well done. Good luck in the future. Awesome. Thank you, Paula. Thank you, uh, John, for having me. It is a pleasure to be on your podcast. I do have to make one comment, John. Go which ahead. Is, I don't know if you remember this. The In 2007, when pod, podcasts had just been created as an idea, I was in the governor's office, Deval Patrick's office, as a 23-year-old little kid trying to create a podcast for Deval Patrick. And we created this podcast. And on your show, months later, you said you called our podcast the turkey of the year during Thanksgiving <laughs> because nobody listened to our podcast. <laughs> and the, I just want to say that 
It is an honor to be on your podcast, and I hope more people are listening to it than the one you gave me grief for that I was so proud of and then so devastated to hear your award that you gave us. I'm I'm sorry to hear about your discomfort, but you have to admit, I was right. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Alex. As far as I can tell, we we were just before our time. Right, exactly. We got to run John's little gobble-gobble sound effect. The timing was a little bit off, but I I do give you credit for trying. Alex, thanks for joining us on Studio BC. Thanks, Alex. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. All right, (laughs) bye-bye. That's unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. My favorite was at the beginning. He was like, I gotta get off the phone for this podcast. This podcast. Like, we are we the hear podcast. It. Yeah. He didn't understand it. We were signed. Like we are the change. No, John yeah. Keller hates podcasts. Yes, he right. never He couldn't one. be involved he in me one. A turkey for starting a podcast. <laughs> okay, let's look at it. Put it online. Put it on Roland. Put it online. Let the record show. <laughs> I was absolutely right on. That podcast oh, was a total goodness. bust. That He had that in his back pocket yeah. for the last uh, 10 years. Yeah, the 10 things years. people obsess oh, over. Oh, that right. lived with him, John. You got Wait, under on, his skin. Yes, you did. Can I, ask, can I ask, has anyone else ever come up to you who oh. has been named a turkey and said, I have a bone to pick with you about that? Not really. They just kind of give you a filthy look from a distance. I did have, this is some years ago when I was uh, covering politics for the late lamented Boston Phoenix. I did a story on the 10 dumbest legislators on Beacon Hill. And believe me, narrowing it down to 10 was the hard part. And uh, sometime after that, I was up at the state house working a story and a state rep approached me. He had made the list. And he's like, how could you call me dumb? Oh. And I just explained, said, look. When to the ask shoe, the question is to answer. If the shoe fits, you know. <laughs> oh, my goodness. What can I, I can't say? imagine something more awkward. By the way, we're getting pretty close to Turkey Day here, and it'll be John Keller's annual Turkeys of the Year coming right. up. National and long. local. National and local. He yeah. does national and yes. local each year. Boy, that's right. Down. I've got to start. I mean, it is a nightmare trying to narrow it down. Oh, this so, list. yeah. Well, we're lucky year. you don't do the interstation turkeys. <laughs> oh my, oh my God. God! Every year when John comes in, it, we're, it's a very exciting moment in oh, the yeah. newsroom when when John comes in with the turkeys of the year. It's true. And we always have additions. Yeah. That we'd like for you to <laughs> put into the piece. Well, I'll tell you what. I'm going to challenge our Studio BC <laughs> listeners oh, right yes. now. I mean, after all, the Halloween candy has been out on the shelves since August 1st. <laughs> We're two months away. Uh, and it'll be just about a week or so until the Christmas stuff No, is I'm out. serious. I saw eggnog yeah. at the grocery store the They're other bingo. day. Oh, I stop almost that. had someone arrested. Oh, stop that. I should have had someone. That should be a That's felony. That's nauseating. That is so revolting. It's nauseating. <laughs> anyway, I challenge our listeners, if you have an early nominee yeah. for Turkey of the Year, mm. local, national, political or cultural uh, my Twitter handle is at Keller at large and my email address is Keller at WBZTV.com my Twitter is at Paula Evan WBZ P Evan at CBS.com and I am L uh, sorry L Martin at CBS.com is my email and Liam WBZ for my Twitter handle and what will we be doing next week everyone we'll, we'll be seeing you, you. Snuck up on me. It's just brutal. (laughs) Okay? I almost had time to pick (laughs) it off. That was a good one.